Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl & Branch sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get even softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code INCREDIBLE. So head to B-O-L-L and branch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And Not good evening, so ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we were having some technical difficulties, and I uh, thank everybody that has uh, waited. At the 9 o'clock hour, we will have Holly Hughes. Uh, in the meantime, I want to play you some Michael uh, Dunn testimony, because we will be talking about Michael Dunn. So take a listen. In a courtroom in Florida, a spectacle. Three hours of can't-look-away testimony from the man accused of murdering an apparently unarmed teenager over loud rap music in a car. Michael Dunn repeatedly tried to convince the jury that he acted in self-defense, while prosecutors repeatedly ripped into him as a cold-blooded killer. This is a case that touches the two classic American hot buttons of race and guns, and ABC's Ryan Owens has this report for our series, Crime and Punishment. I'm looking out the window, and I said, you're not going to kill me, you son of a bitch, and I shot. In his own words and in riveting detail. It, it wasn't just my life I was worried about, no. Admitted killer Michael Dunn recreates for the jury the moments that led to the shooting death of 17-year-old Jordan Davis. Do you notice any differences about your body physically? I'm shaking. I mean, I'm quivering like a leaf. Prosecutors call it cold-blooded murder. Dunn maintains it was self-defense. It started when Dunn and his fiancée, Rhonda Rauer, pulled into a Jacksonville, Florida gas station in November 2012. They parked next to an SUV full of teens. Body panels of the SUV were rattling. My rearview mirror was shaking. My eardrums were vibrating. I mean, this was ridiculously loud music. Dunn's fiance testified the 47-year-old software developer had this reaction. And what did the defendant say? Oh, I hate that thug music. Rauer went inside the store to buy a bottle of wine. Seconds later, gunshots. Oh my God, somebody's shooting. Somebody's shooting out of their car. Dunn pulled his semi-automatic pistol out of the glove box and fired 10 times. Today, he testified while she was in the store, he talked to the young men in that SUV. I said, can you turn that down, please? They turned it off. And if the music wasn't off, at least the bass stopped completely. Okay. And at that point, what did you then say? I said, thank you. Okay. Dunn says the pleasantries didn't last long. And with Jordan Davis's parents looking on, he told the jury the 17-year-old in the rear passenger seat started mouthing off. I should kill that here. I should kill that Now he's screaming. Okay. There's, no, there's no mistake of what he said. That is what he said. Today, Dunn tried to convince the jury Jordan Davis was a foul-mouthed, shotgun-toting teen who actually pointed a gun at him. You said it looked like a barrel of a gun or a shotgun? It was a thick enough uh, profile. It was, to my eye, a 12-gauge, maybe 20. When he says, yeah, I'm going to kill you, I look, and I'm looking at a barrel. He's, he's showing me a gun. He's threatening me. But after he opened the door, then he looked at me and said, you're dead. At that point, 
What did you believe was about to happen to you? I, I thought I was going to be killed. That was only one of the buzzwords Dunn used to try to convince this jury the shooting was self-defense. He seemed to hit them all. I was still fighting for my life. I knew I had done nothing wrong. I have every right of self-defense, and I took it. But Prosecutor John Guy would have none of it. Jordan Davis was never a threat to you, was he, Mr. Dunn? Absolutely, he was. As soon as his cross-examination began, we were reminded why defense attorneys cringe when their clients take the stand. I don't want to call it an act of desperation, but they really had no choice. Without his testimony, there was no evidence of self-defense. All you had was a man shooting nine times into a car with a bunch of teenagers. He would easily be convicted. So he had to get on the stand. He had to explain why he fled the scene and why he didn't call 911. You were being disrespected by a mouthy teenager, weren't you? No, I was being threatened. Threatening to kill somebody isn't a disrespect. That is just crazy. Prosecutor Guy reminded the jury no gun was found in the teen's SUV and grilled Dunn on every inconsistency, including the fact his own fiance said he never mentioned a gun the night this happened. You did not tell her during that three miles anyone pointed any weapon at you, did you? I think I did. I think I was very clear that they threatened my life. My question was, did you tell her they had a weapon of any kind? Yes, I did. Mr. Dunn, the truth is, you never told the love of your life that those boys had a gun. You weren't there. All right, ma'am, if you'll come right around here. Later, prosecutors called the fiancé back to the stand to hammer home the point. When you came out of the, out of the gate gas station and you got into the defendant's car, yes. did the defendant ever tell you he saw a gun in that red SUV? Back in the hotel room, Ms. Rauer, that same night, did the defendant ever tell you that he saw the boys with a firearm? No. Did he ever tell you that he saw the boys with a weapon? No. Dunn claims his fiance got something else wrong, too. The last word she said she heard him say before the shooting. I hate that thug music. You don't recall saying, I hate that thug music? No, if I would have said anything, I would have called it rap crap. Thug music isn't a term I would use. The prosecution spent a lot of time quizzing Dunn about his behavior after the shooting. Mr. Dunn, the reason you left the gas station is because you knew you had shot into a car of four unarmed teenagers. That's incorrect. Dunn acknowledges he and Rauer fled the scene of the shooting and never called police. Instead, they returned to this hotel and ordered pizza and made some cocktails. I didn't call the police until the following morning. You called the pizza man? Dunn said he didn't realize anyone had been killed until late that night when he used his cell phone to search for information about the shooting. I ran to the bathroom. I just, Tell the jury why you ran to the bathroom. I, I vomited. Okay. But he still didn't call police, and he instead drove home to Central Florida, where he was ultimately arrested. It wasn't going to change it from self-defense to anything else. Dunn was on the stand for more than three hours, and he was the defense's final... Okay, everybody, we are here and live on King Jordan Radio for February 19th, 2014. This is King Jordan listening to. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a CNN analyst, 
a prosecutor, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Holly Hughes. Good evening, Holly. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Okay. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to get into tonight, uh, but before we do, I wanted to uh, give you a chance to uh, to plug uh, your website, as I'm looking for it right now. Uh, <laughs> you have it, Andy? <laughs> okay. Yes, as a matter of fact, we're launching a new website. It should be up and running tonight. And it's the name of my firm. It's HughesAndManning.com. So it's my last name and the word A-N-D. My partner is Manning, M-A-N-N-I-N-G. So HughesAndManning.com. And we are practicing lawyers here in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And then, of course, as you know, I also do legal commentary for various uh, radio programs and television networks. Absolutely. Okay, I did want to start the show off with the uh, the, the Craigslist so-called Craigslist killer. Um, yeah. Let me play a clip of this girl that says she killed up to a hundred people, but she stopped at twenty-two. The question is, is she believable? Uh, let's take a look to this clip, and on the other side, I want to get your take on this. Okay. I wanted to get your initial reaction when you heard her say, oh, I don't know, under 100, to your question of how many people she thinks she killed. I want to ask what your reaction was, but very deep in that question is whether you really believe this woman or not. Well, when she said that it was under 100, I looked at her and I said, Miranda, there's nobody in the world that's going to believe that you've murdered under 100 people. And she looked me dead square in the eye and she said, I don't care what anybody believes. I want to get this off my chest for me. And I said, Miranda, you got to give me a number. You want this story out there, then you got to give me a number. And she said, I stopped counting at 22. So the, the experts who are sort of trying to piece together the, the concept of the forensics of all of this say between the ages of 13 and 19 and six short years, there's just almost no conceivable way that anybody could have carried out that many murders and not been caught. Because these guys got caught with their last telephone call. I, did you get the impression that she's really scheming and clever and maybe inching towards an insanity defense with what she told you, or that she's just downright evil? She told me that she wanted to plead guilty. She said, I want to plead guilty to this. And, I, and, and when I asked, I said, you know, you're going to have a lot of people wondering what's going on. And she said she would pinpoint on a map where, where these people are and what happened. She also told me she surrounded herself with a lot of people. She said she would learn these people, she would follow these people, she would befriend these people, and then, and then bad things would happen. And she said, you know, uh, she said she's never been questioned and she's never been a suspect in anything. So, of course, it's a very hard tale. It's a very hard thing to believe. The most chilling thing that she said to me, and you can throw all the numbers out and you could have every expert on in the world to say it, but the most chilling thing she said to me was uh, if she ever gets out, she would do it again. So uh, have the police... Uh, canvassed you and, and asked you for any more information. Are they at, at all in co uh, collaboration with you in terms of trying to ferret out whether any of this information is just garbage or whether there's really some cold cases that could be cracked here? Well, what happened is, is uh, uh, I was not allowed to bring anything into the jail, so they taped the interview. The jailhouse taped the interview, and I was asked to go and verify the tape 
and to make sure that, you know, it was, this is what she had said, and then I, I was the person that she was talking to. So other than that, everything else has been clearly on the tape. So there's, other than what she said on that, there's nothing else really to say. Uh, I, today they had brought her into, actually brought her into the Sunbury Police Station to be fingerprinted, and uh, I looked at her and I said, Miranda, I did what you wanted and got your story out there. I'll come and see you again on Thursday. And she looked at me and nodded her head yes. I know you saw her this morning briefly, right? Did you get anything out of her? Was there any, uh, any more information from this woman? There was, there was a, a ton of media there, but she did look me right in the face and nodded her head yes about coming to see her on Thursday. Wow, Holly Hughes, I want to go to you on this uh, uh, twisted girl. Uh, she said she's been doing it since she was 13. She said she stopped counting when it was uh, uh, 22. Uh, a, do you believe this girl? And uh, B, uh, uh, if you don't believe this girl, uh, what do you do with this type of situation in, in the legal field? Well, no, I don't believe her at all. She can definitely be tied to the latest murder, the one that caught her on, the killing of 42-year-old right. Troy LaFerrera. They've got her on that, and they got her, Jordan, because of the sloppiest mistake. She was on his cell phone. The last call was between the two of them. So you don't kill, you know, 22-plus people, and then on, you know, this last murder, you make such a simple amateurish mistake. So, no, this is a young lady who probably has several different mental illnesses happening. You know, she's seeking attention. She wants people to marvel at what she claims she's done. But bear in mind, even though she may have mental illnesses, it doesn't mean she's going to be found legally insane. Because you and I know there's a vast difference between having a mental illness and being found legally incompetent to stand trial. So at this point, she may be exhibiting some of those signs of her mental illnesses, but she's still going to be tried on this particular murder. And what will happen? There will be so much investigation and so much follow-up and she claimed to this reporter that she could give them specific places where the bodies are and names and what she's done. And they will interview her ad nauseum, and they will continue to press her for those details. If she can provide anything that corroborates her story, then it's possible she'll be tied to them. But I think she's probably just going to go down on this one that they've nailed her on pretty good. If you're a defense attorney, uh, if you're a hard defense attorney, what are you thinking right now? Are uh, you pulling your, head, your, your, your hands out of your hair or your head out of your hair? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And her defense attorney even said this. She said, I didn't know she was giving these interviews. If you're defending this young woman, you know, you're absolutely screaming. And what you're screaming is, shut up, stop talking. Because the more she talks, the more she puts out there, the more it's going to be used against her in a court of law. You know, her attorney had initially said, well, she asked for a lawyer and the police denied her a lawyer and therefore the confession is inadmissible. Well, then she turns around and confesses to a newspaper reporter. So, of course, there is no privilege. There is no confidentiality. It's all waste. So that motion is just circling the drain, okay? You can flush that one. It's gone, Jordan. It's never coming back. So, you know, as for defense attorney, the first thing I'm doing is I'm just cringing and I'm saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. That can never be good. Talk. And then secondarily, I really am seeking an expert in the field of psychiatry. 
I want this girl examined six ways from Sunday because what the defense is going to have to do here, they are going to file those motions. They're going to seek to have her declared legally incompetent, and that's probably going to fail. In cases where people try to plead insanity, it only works in 1% of the cases it's used in, and it's only used in like less than 10% of all the cases across the country. So that's a minuscule number where it works. The other thing is her defense attorney I'm looking to is, bear in mind, she did this with her husband, Elliot, to commemorate their three-week wedding anniversary, which is a whole different kind of sick, right? Let's be oh real frank God. about that. So yeah. what, as her defense attorney, what I'm saying is she never killed anybody in her life. She didn't do anything until she hooked up with this guy. And this guy is the one who influenced her, who forced her to do it. And I am digging through his closet so hard to see what kind of skeletons there are so that maybe we can apportion responsibility here. Yeah, and a couple of weeks ago he had a totally different story uh, to the story that he's singing right now. Do you think it's possible that he manipulated her to possibly even kill? Oh, absolutely. We see that a lot. We see these couples that come together, and one by themselves would never do it. But you put them together, and it is a deadly, deadly combination. So, of course, each of the defense attorneys in this case, because you know what happens when a sink, uh, ship starts sinking, right? The rats jump off. So everybody now is trying to jump off of this sinking ship. So his attorney is going to try and blame her and say, well, look, she's been killing since she's 13. She belongs to a satanic cult. But let's address that for one second. The FBI statistics, if you read the statistics that are put out every year by the FBI, there has never been a confirmed satanic ritual killing in this country. Now, years ago... There was all of that, you know, the McMartin preschool and ever. Oh, it's Satanists, and they did this and that. There's never been one that has been verified on the book. There are a lot that are, you know, suspected to be, but the FBI stats tell you there isn't one. So his lawyer is going to say she's crazy, but she's responsible and she's a Satanist and she drug him into it. And then, of course, her lawyers are going to turn around and say. She didn't do any of this nonsense until she met him. She did this to please him, to celebrate the third, you know, three-week wedding anniversary. So, yeah, there's a lot of finger pointing that's going to start taking place in this case. In your years of practice, did you ever have somebody like this young girl admit to things that she didn't even do to reach uh, glory? No, I have not personally. I have had several different cases, murder cases and whatnot, and on both sides, as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney, where, you know, you really, you sit with this person, you sit with this client, and you spend time with him, and you think, wow, there is something seriously wrong with you. But as a lawyer, I'm not qualified to go into a court of law and say that. So I need to hire that expert. I need to find that psychiatrist who is going to do the intensive interviewing, who has the training, who's going to say this is a problem and this is what's making them give these false confessions. We know for a fact false confessions happen all the time. You look at the young men who were convicted of raping the Central Park jogger, right? How many years did those young men spend until they were grown? You know, 20-plus years they spent in prison because they had confessed, and it comes out in the end, Jordan, that they did not do it, but there are all sorts of the, coercion. Uh, the West What's Memphis that? Three, do you remember that, uh, those three guys? 
Right, absolutely. Now, yeah, and and that one young gentleman who sort of started that whole whole ball rolling was mentally challenged. And so, you know, when the investigators went after him, they were able to sort of trick him, but not in a not in a way where the police are allowed to lie to you kind of way, but in a way where he was mentally developed, mentally disabled, and they took advantage of that. So, yeah, I mean, I am very familiar with cases where that has happened. And I'm also familiar as a prosecutor. I was prosecuting a fellow who had unfortunately murdered his wife in front of their three little girls and then left her body there. And the poor little girls were walking around, you know, little baby footprints through mommy's blood for quite a few hours, you know. And he tried to tell us, oh, well, I'm crazy, I'm insane. And I had to interview his children. And the oldest one was only five, interview a specialist there. But the little five-year-old was brilliant, and she said, you know, can you tell me what happened, honey? You don't lead them. You just ask them the question. And she was able to tell me, yes, Mommy and Daddy were fighting. They were arguing. Daddy got a knife. He stuck it in Mommy's neck. Mommy didn't yell anymore. So, I mean, there you have it. He's not crazy. This was just a fight that got out of hand, and so he was trying to claim it. But, of course, it didn't work in his case. So we see a lot of these issues raised, and then a lot of them will fail. And I suspect nobody is going to find her incompetent to stand trial. I think she'll end up pleading, and they may have her testify against him if he insists on pushing for a trial. And uh, do you remember the guy who uh, claimed that he killed John Benet Ramsey? Uh, he also oh, seeks uh, over yeah. yeah, Mark remember that? Carr, wasn't it? Mark Carr, yes. wasn't that his name? Yes. Yeah, again, and, you know, seek a mentally disturbed person, but seeking attention, looking for that glory, even though it's in a negative way. You know, and we, we, all, we don't have to be psychiatrists to understand. You know, we know people in our own lives who act out just to get attention, even though it's negative attention, it's still attention. So, you know, you see these people who are, you know, mentally disabled in some way. They're challenged. They have an illness, and it causes them to act out. You know, and thankfully, it, you know, they didn't lock him up and incarcerate him for that crime that he didn't commit. Now, if I remember right, he did commit some other things over in Thailand, and I had to answer for that. But that at least frees the investigation up to go forward and to look for the person who truly did it, because that was another false confession. Yes, and uh, a lot of false confessions, though, are uh, by... Uh done by a lot of the uh, agents trying to, uh, when they're interrogating people, that's when you find your high-volume uh, confessions, like Amanda Knox, for example, right? Right, Amanda Knox. So there was a young man uh, by the name of Michael Crow, who when they questioned him, I believe he was only like 13 years old, they questioned him without his parents, and they convinced this 13-year-old that he had murdered his sister Stephanie. And, of course, uh, you know, he was, I believe he was convicted. Don't quote me on that. You'd need to Google the story. But, yes, Michael Crow was also browbeat into, um, you know, giving a false confession, and it was later found out there was a bandana with a total stranger's blood, and there had been some drifter going through the neighborhood. So, yes, it happens all the time. When things aren't done properly, there is always that door that's opened for a false confession. Now, the law states clearly that they can deceive you, they can lie to you, they can trick you, but when you talk about taking advantage of either someone very young, and there should have been a parent present when he was questioned, 
or someone who is mentally challenged, then clearly you need to change your approach and you need to not take advantage to get that false confession because nobody wins in that situation. You've got a real killer or a real perpetrator still walking the streets possibly to do it to someone else. Absolutely, no question. I uh, played the clip a little bit earlier, but uh, for the listeners that are just joining us, I want to play a little timeline of the Michael Dunn uh, testimony and trial. And then on the other side, uh, you were there live uh, by CNN. Uh, I want to get your take on the uh, verdict. In a courtroom in Florida, a spectacle. Three hours of can't-look-away testimony from the man accused of murdering an apparently unarmed teenager over loud rap music in a car. Michael Dunn repeatedly tried to convince the jury that he acted in self-defense, while prosecutors repeatedly ripped into him as a cold-blooded killer. This is a case that touches the two classic American hot buttons of race and guns, and ABC's Ryan Owens has this report for our series, Crime and Punishment. I'm looking out the window, and I said, you're not going to kill me, you son of a bitch, and I shot. In his own words and in riveting detail, it, it wasn't just my life I was worried about, no. Admitted killer Michael Dunn recreates for the jury the moments that led to the shooting death of 17-year-old Jordan Davis. Do you notice any differences about your body physically? I'm shaking. I mean, I'm quivering like a leaf. Prosecutors call it cold-blooded murder. Dunn maintains it was self-defense. It started when Dunn and his fiancée, Rhonda Rauer, pulled into a Jacksonville, Florida gas station in November 2012. They parked next to an SUV full of teens. Body panels in the SUV were rattling. My rearview mirror was shaking. My eardrums were vibrating. I mean, this was ridiculously loud music. Dunn's fiance testified the 47-year-old software developer had this reaction. And what did the defendant say? Oh, I hate that thug music. Rauer went inside the store to buy a bottle of wine. Seconds later, gunshots. Oh my God, somebody's shooting. Somebody's shooting out their car. Dunn pulled his semi-automatic pistol out of the glove box and fired 10 times. Today, he testified while she was in the store, he talked to the young men in that SUV. I said, can you turn that down, please? They turned it off. And if the music wasn't off, at least the bass stopped completely. Okay. And at that point, what did you then say? I said, thank you. Dunn says the pleasantries didn't last long. And with Jordan Davis's parents looking on, he told the jury the 17-year-old in the rear passenger seat started mouthing off. I should kill that here. I should kill that Now he's screaming. Okay. There's, no, there's no mistake of what he said. That is what he said. Today, Dunn tried to convince the jury Jordan Davis was a foul-mouthed, shotgun-toting teen who actually pointed a gun at him. You said it looked like a barrel of a gun or a shotgun? It was a thick enough uh, profile. It was, to my eye, a 12-gauge, maybe 20. When he says, yeah, I'm going to kill you, I look, and I'm looking at a barrel. He's, he's showing me a gun, and he's threatening me. But after he opened the door, then he looked at me and said, you're dead. At that point, what did you believe was about to happen to you? I, I thought I was going to be killed. That was only one of the buzzwords Dunn used to try to convince this jury the shooting was self-defense. He seemed to hit them all. 
I was still fighting for my life. I knew I had done nothing wrong. I have every right of self-defense, and I took it. But Prosecutor John Guy would have none of it. Jordan Davis was never a threat to you, was he, Mr. Dunn? Absolutely, he was. As soon as his cross-examination began, we were reminded why defense attorneys cringe when their clients take the stand. I don't want to call it an act of desperation, but they really had no choice. Without his testimony, there was no evidence of self-defense. All you had was a man shooting nine times into a car with a bunch of teenagers. He would easily be convicted. So he had to get on the stand. He had to explain why he fled the scene and why he didn't call 911. You were being disrespected by a mouthy teenager, weren't you? No, I was being threatened. Threatening to kill somebody isn't a disrespect. That is just crazy. Prosecutor Guy reminded the jury no gun was found in the teen's SUV and grilled Dunn on every inconsistency, including the fact his own fiance said he never mentioned a gun the night this happened. You did not tell her during that three miles anyone pointed any weapon at you, did you? I think I did. I think I was very clear that they threatened my life. My question was, did you tell her they had a weapon of any kind? Yes, I did. Mr. Dunn, the truth is, you never told the love of your life that those boys had a gun. You weren't there. All right, ma'am, if you'll come right around here. Later, prosecutors called the fiancé back to the stand to hammer home the point. When you came out of the, out of the gate gas station and you got into the defendant's car, yes. did the defendant ever tell you he saw a gun in that red SUV? Back in the hotel room, Ms. Rauer, that same night, did the defendant ever tell you that he saw the boys with a firearm? No. Did he ever tell you that he saw the boys with a weapon? No. Dunn claims his fiance got something else wrong, too. The last word she said she heard him say before the shooting. I hate that thug music. You don't recall saying, I hate that thug music? No, if I would have said anything, I would have called it rap crap. Thug music isn't a term I would use. The prosecution spent a lot of time quizzing Dunn about his behavior after the shooting. Mr. Dunn, the reason you left the gas station is because you knew you had shot into a car of four unarmed teenagers. That's incorrect. Dunn acknowledges he and Rauer fled the scene of the shooting and never called police. Instead, they returned to this hotel and ordered pizza and made some cocktails. I didn't call them. Holly Hughes, you followed this case from the get-go. What is your take on this whole uh, uh, Dunn case? And I think it's very different than Zimmerman. I'll tell you why after, but what's your take? Well, my take is that if you just use common sense, right. let's just examine the evidence and the testimony. Use your common sense, Jordan. Don't Let's not even say the names Michael Dunn and Jordan Davis right now. Let's just say two people come into contact. One is threatened with a gun. The other one defends himself. The first thing you are going to say is, oh, my God, he had a gun. I didn't have a choice. Anybody would say that. You would be traumatized that you had to kill another human being. If you thought you were justified, you would not have fled the scene. You would have immediately dialed 911 and you would have told people he had a gun, he had a gun, he had a gun. He is being rewarded for being a good criminal. He fled the scene. 
He didn't call 911. He didn't tell anybody that there was a gun. Here's what could have happened. If that story was true, Jordan, if, in fact, Jordan Davis had a gun and Michael Dunn had manned up and said that immediately and reported it to the police and stayed on the scene, what would have happened? They would have searched for the gun or they would have swabbed Jordan's hands during the autopsy for GSR, gunshot residue. All of this would have been done immediately. If you know you're justified, you don't run and hide. You stay there and you tell the truth and you say what happened. You don't, weeks and weeks later, come up with a story. There's just no evidence to support his story. There is nothing but his word. And his word was contrary to everybody else that took the stand, to the three young men in the vehicle, to his own fiance. If anybody was going to try to help Michael Dunn, if anybody was going to try and sway the jury that Michael Dunn acted, it would have been her. But she said he never mentioned a gun. He called it thug music. So essentially what Michael Dunn did in testifying was call every other witness a liar. That, to me, should not raise reasonable doubt. Now, I, you know, I work in the system, so I am not going to point fingers at that jury. I applaud them. i got to tell you, this is one of the hardest-working juries I have ever, ever seen. And Jordan Davis's aunt just told Anderson Cooper just tonight, you know, I appreciate the hard work. I appreciate everything they did. This was such a conscientious jury that they even noticed there was one page missing out of the 12 sets of jury instructions that went back there. So I'm not taking issue with them, but what disturbs me is every other witness was basically called a liar by believing Michael Dunn. And, you right. know, when you have to kill somebody in self-defense, Jordan, if you are a human being, that man cried on the stand over a dog. That man cried on the stand over himself. If I had to take the life of an intruder, if someone broke into my house and I had to defend myself, if they had a, and I had to shoot them, I would still be sobbing that I had to take a human life. I would have remorse for that even if I thought I had no choice. But I would immediately call the police, and I would not tamper with the scene, and I would not run away. I would say, this is what happened. Come and investigate. If you are justified, if you are telling the truth, you don't run. You don't run. And I'm sorry, I was worried about my dog. Okay, if that's true, Rhonda could have called Enterprise from the gas station. Enterprise is a rental agency. They would have come and picked you up, and she could have gone back to the hotel and taken care of the dog. And one thing I can't get over is why he had to shoot the gun nine, ten times. Well, exactly, and let's face it, you know, he's, he is a grown man. He testified he has lots of experience with firearms. So the first thing, I am a firearm owner. I have been shooting firearms since I was a child, literally. My father was a military man, and he taught us all how to, I can take a gun completely apart, I clean my own weapons, I go to the firing range, I'm a fantastic shot, okay, I'm a center mass shooter. But the first thing my father taught us about guns was respect. You have respect for this because this can kill somebody. If this man was such a firearms aficionado, firing a gun should have been the last thing he did. Put your car in reverse and move on. Get away. And here's how I know it's possible. 
because the three young men, when they were fired upon, put it in reverse and drove away. So come on, you can do it. Teenage boys knew that that was the best option. Do you really think if there was a gun in their car, they would not have picked it up and fired back? That would have been self-defense. So it's yeah. just not, it's not plausible. Yeah. There is nothing, no physical evidence, nothing but this man's word. And the problem with that, Jordan, is that story was not concocted until weeks after. Now let's look at the Zimmerman case. There was only one gunshot, uh, as far as I know. There was only one yeah. gunshot. He called the police right after. So that's already two big things. There were uh, witnesses. He had damaged his head with all kinds of blood. And, you know, that that was huge. So that's just three things off the top of my head. So I I look at these cases as two very different cases. But, you know. Yeah, they are factually very different. You're absolutely right. He didn't flee the scene. He did call 911. There was some evidence that there had been a scuffle, but the question still becomes for me in that particular instance, we know from the scene, we know 100% that Trayvon Martin did not have a weapon. So the reason that I still have a problem with that particular case is you should not be able to shoot somebody because you think something is going to happen. Because then what we do is we have the wild, wild west, where it's shoot first and figure out a story later. So, yes, actually it's very different, and I will tell you, I think that's why the jury in that instance reached a very different conclusion. Because remember, Michael Dunn has not been acquitted of that murder charge. He will go back and face another jury on that murder of Jordan Davis. George Zimmerman will not face a jury on the killing of Trayvon Martin. It is over and done. Also remember that in that case, in the George Zimmerman case, where he shot and killed Trayvon Martin, the state charged second-degree murder. Now, in Florida, that means you only have to have a jury of six people, not 12. When you charge first-degree, you must have a jury of 12 people. It is much easier to get six people to agree than it is to get 12 people to agree. And I often say this about our jury system because... I've worked in the system for a long time, and I've tried cases on both sides of the aisle. And what I say is, consider this. Walk into any public venue, right? Go to an airport. Go to a shopping mall. Go anywhere. Randomly pick 12 people, any 12 people, because that's what you're doing in jury selection. You're randomly selecting 12 people. Put them in a room together and see if you can get them to unanimously decide on what to eat for lunch. They're not going to be able to do it. Seriously, but yet for some reason we think when life and death is on the line, we can put 12 strangers in a room and get them to agree on the evidence, to agree to convict somebody, maybe for the death penalty, maybe for life in prison. That is an incredibly high burden. So, you know, there's a lot that needs to be looked at in these cases. You know, we need to look at this whole self-defense, justification, no duty to retreat. Is that really the law we want on the books, or do we want to say you have some responsibility to retreat if you can safely do so? Because let's look at it very logically. If that's the law, then you still have the chance to argue, I couldn't safely retreat. I was justified in using that deadly force. 
but there's still that one extra layer of protection so you don't have the wild, wild west. So you don't have people shooting first and then deciding later, oh, maybe he didn't have a gun. Yeah, it's uh, pretty pretty complicated, uh, this whole uh, law in Florida. Uh, but anyway, here is a clip of Michael Dunn saying he's the victim. Florida State's Attorney's Office just released some of the jailhouse calls from Michael Dunn, the man convicted of attempted murder in a so-called loud music trial. And in one of those calls to his fiancée, you can hear him say that he was the victim. I know you're innocent, baby. Uh, I know you did something that you wish you hadn't had to do, but you did what you had to do. And um, so I, I know... You know, I, I was thinking about that today. I was like, I'm the victim here. I was the one who was victimized. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know uh, how, how else to put it. Like, they attacked me. I, I'm the victim. Right. I'm the victor, but I was the victim, too. Meanwhile, people rallied outside the gas station where this all happened, and 17-year-old Jordan Davis was shot. The jury deadlocked on whether to convict Dunn of murder in that. He was convicted of lesser charges that could still put him away for life. And the mom of Jordan Davis says that she will continue to wait for justice for her son and that she continues to pray for Michael Dunn. Prosecutors have said they plan to retry him. Okay, Holly, what do you make of uh, Michael Dunn's sort of uh, laughing, cocky attitude behind bars talking to his uh, fiance? Oh, well, the word offensive jumps into my head. That's the first thing. That's just offensive on so many different levels. But it puts you into his mindset. He has an incredibly enhanced sense of entitlement. And that's where he gets himself in. He's entitled to talk to people like that. He's entitled to own that gas station parking lot. Nobody play music he doesn't approve of. He's entitled to empty a gun into a car of unarmed teenagers because, damn it, he's just that important. So the arrogance and the entitlement, again, I mean, he actually wrote a letter where he compared himself to being a rape victim. You know, that just absolutely, again, I can't stress this enough. Even if you felt you had no choice, he spent how much time on the stand did he ever once say, I am so sorry this had to happen? You know, even if he couldn't bring himself to say, I'm sorry I shot your son because he thinks that's some kind of an admission and his attorney has advised him not to do it. You know, I'm a defense attorney. I get that. You don't want him to make an admission. But my gosh, show some human compassion. I didn't have a choice, but I'm horrified that it had to happen. I'm so sorry it had to happen. I'm so sorry, you know, to to the parents, to Lucy and Ron. I mean, really? You spend all that time up there, and the only time you cry is for yourself and your little dog? That just, the arrogance and the sense of entitlement is off the chain. Yeah, that is... uh... That is totally unheard of. And And what is he he the victim of? I mean, what is he the victim of? Can we ask that question? Nothing happened to him. He was disrespected. Somebody played their music too loud and somebody cursed at him. Okay, you know what? I used to be, Jordan, I was a teenager. I played my music loud, okay? Sure. I'm sure people thought I was obnoxious, okay? I'm mouthy. I'm mouthy now. Can you imagine what I was like as a teenager, right? 
I disrespected people, but here's the bottom line. Yes, Jordan Davis turned up the music. Yes, Jordan Davis cussed. The penalty for that should not be the death penalty. The punishment for being disrespectful should not be the death penalty. And that's what Michael Dunn needed out that day because he thought he was entitled to call all the shots. No pun intended. Yeah, I I mean, I, I can't emphasize how much the uh, Zimmerman trial and, and uh, this are just so different, just so many elements. This guy really had it out for, this guy could have retreated, uh, like, like like we said before. This guy well, he could have acted like an adult. He could have rolled up his window. He could have moved his vehicle. He could have gone inside the store with his fiance, and he wouldn't have heard the music. Go help the lady. Why are you sending Aaron to spend the money and get the drinks, okay? Be a gentleman. Yeah. Get out. Go in. The, I mean, there are a thousand variations of his behavior he could have exercised that day. did not have to happen. This was a hundred percent, a thousand percent avoidable. And he was the adult in the situation. We have all, all of us, as teenagers, been disrespectful. And as adults, come across somebody being disrespectful. And the adult thing to do is just avoid the situation. You don't ratchet it up a notch by screaming, you're not going to kill me, and grabbing your gun. You just move your vehicle. And how long are you going to be there? They weren't parked at a drive-in movie theater where they're going to be there for hours. They were at a convenience store, Jordan. How long are you going to be there? Five minutes? Then leave it alone, dude. Leave it alone. Yeah, you're you're 100% right. And uh, his his fiance, girlfriend, whatever, she got on the stand and, you know, they point blank asked her, did you think that he, did he say anything about a gun? And uh, she, she went up on the stand and seemed to be very credible and say everything which was true. You know, he didn't say what? nothing to her. If he was in that much fear, don't you think he would have said, you know, you know what, honey, you know, uh, this is just terrible what happened. His heart would have been beating, you know, if this was really self-defense. You know, yeah. the way he approached this was just just absurd. Right. There's something in the law called excited utterance. And this is an exception to the hearsay rule because when we are in excited circumstances and something traumatic happens to us, we tend to blurt out the truth. Like, you know, say you're in a car accident, okay, and you're like, oh, my God, he ran the light. That's the first thing you say. And even if you can't say that in court, somebody else can testify. I heard Jordan say, oh, my God, he ran the red light, because it has what we call the indicia of reliability. Because when you're in that excited state, you tend to spout out things that are true because you haven't had time to reflect and you haven't had time to make up a story, to fabricate something, right? So when you're in that dramatic situation, the first thing that you're going to blurt out when your love of your life comes running out, oh, my God, honey, you had a gun. Oh, my God, I thought I was going to get shot. That's the first thing you're going to do. That is human nature. That is absolutely a guttural instinct. We all do it. You know, put yourself in a situation, think back in your life, when something really startling or traumatic happened, what blurted out of your mouth? The truth. But he the doesn't truth. come up with his gun story until weeks later. That is why, in the law, excited utterances are admissible, even though they would technically be hearsay, because we trust that, we rely on that, because we haven't had time to make up a story. This gun story, not until weeks later. 
Mm-mm. And he got rewarded for making that story up. When had he said that at the scene, they would have swabbed Jordan's hands, they would have searched for a gun, and they would have known it was a load of crap. Yeah, uh, it, it basically, like you said, he felt like uh, uh, they were embarrassing him. Uh, they were maybe mocking him, maybe saying something that probably maybe they shouldn't have. And he felt like, I'm the big man here. You're not going to say that to me. That's exactly right. You're not going to talk to me that way. You're not going to disrespect me because I am so important. Sense of entitlement. Totally. Uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, talks about the Dunn case, and he thinks he has a good chance that uh, Dunn could go free on appeal. I want you to hear this and uh, thoughts on the other side. You're upset now? Look, famed attorney Alan Dershowitz slammed prosecutor Angela Corey saying the people of Florida should get rid of her, claiming she overcharged Dunn with first-degree murder. He predicts the three guilty verdicts for attempted murder related to Dunn shooting at the three other teens as they drove away will likely be overturned, claiming the smarter charge would have been assault with a deadly weapon. Listen to this. I think she may also lose her appeal on the attempted murder case. There is a chance that he could walk as a result of prosecutorial ineptitude. It's possible. I mean, Rolanda Watts, if he walks on the three attempted murders, I, 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 think you know, this, I, I, I really think this nation is going to have a real major, major issue. I mean, this, this is just ludicrous. What I do appreciate is what the juror pointed out, is how unnecessary this entire thing was. The man should have just gotten in his car, turned around, and gone on about his business. And as a person in society, whether you're black or white or whatever, mind your own business. If he had done that from the very beginning, thank goodness, juror number four gave some humanization to this whole thing. Because this is, they don't have a case without bringing in the, the, uh, the racial, racial issue. So what it looks like to me is the prosecution doesn't plan to have a case. And this man could possibly walk free. Then you're going to have to deal with America when people are tired of you shooting and killing their children. Because let me tell you, what's going to happen when a young black teenager feels that when a white man walks up and, and tells him to turn his music down, that he feels intimidated. And he pulls out and starts shooting. What are we going to do, America? That's the question. Holly Hughes, what do you make of Alan Dershowitz's uh, statement that uh, he could... Uh, Actually, go free. That's a long shot. Well, well, here's the thing. Alan Dershowitz is one of the greatest legal minds of our entire generation. In fact, I was just at a lecture he gave a couple weeks back, and the man is brilliant, not just on the law, but on everything, international, politics. I mean, he's just absolutely brilliant. But I I think that he's right about the appeal issue. I agree with him because when the judge – Got that series of three questions about the law of self-defense. You know, does it apply? If it applies to one, does it apply to all? And he answered yes, yes. And then on the third one, he sort of waffled, and he sent back an answer that said not necessarily. Here's where judges get into trouble. Ninety percent of cases that come back on appeal come back because of a bad charge to the jury or an answer to a juror's question. So he is not completely off the mark in thinking that possibly an appellate court would say, uh, with respect to that charge, that particular answer, 
that was a mistake. But here's where I disagree. He is still, they've got him dead to rights on the firing into a vehicle. So they've got him on that, which is at least 15 years. And if the appellate court says the judge made a mistake, they don't, he doesn't just get to walk. They send it back for a new trial on those charges. So he right. doesn't just get a free pass. He, right. he would be retried. And when he was facing trial the first time, he sat in jail with no bond. So he would still be sitting in jail waiting for a new trial, even if, God forbid, some appellate court say, you know, we think that there was a problem with the answer to the juror's question or with the jury charge. But other than that, you know, they're not going to send it back because the state overcharged. The state didn't get a verdict on that yet. They get another bite at that apple. And if, in fact, some of these charges come back, they're going to have a second bite at that apple, too. Because the court will say, you know, you get to do over. Because what you're guaranteed under the Constitution of the United States is a fair trial. So if they think that that answer to the jury was unfair, it doesn't mean you get to walk out. It just means you would be tried again on all of those charges. So, you know, he raises a very good legal issue with respect to, you know, is there going to be a problem on appeal? However... I don't foresee this man ever walking out of prison. He's at least going to do the 15 years on that gun charge. And then when they convict him on the murder charge, whether it's first or second degree, he's going to do that time. He is going to do that time. So I don't see him walking out. Now, uh, Cor Angela Corey said, you know, there could be something else where he might have a chance to get out earlier or whatever. So, to recharge, uh, recharging him on that one important count could almost certainly uh, uh, make sure that Mr. Dunn stays behind bars for the rest of his life. Not, not, you know, most likely he would, but this would, you know, almost put it in the bank, right? Well, absolutely. And, you know, I'm not sure what she's talking about because under Florida law, the range on those attempted second-degree murder charges is up to 30 years, but the law also clearly states that he has to serve at least 20. It's what we lawyers call mandatory minimum. So the minimum he would have to serve every day to the door for each one of those charges is 20 years. And the law in Florida also says that they have to run consecutive to each other. So he would have to do 20, then 20 more, then 20 more. So I did not hear her make that comment about he might get out early. I'm not sure what that's about, but maybe she's referring to if it comes back on appeal. But the important yeah, thing here is, they still, yeah. yeah, well, but they still need to, regardless, regardless of whether there's an appellate issue or not, they need to press forward on the murder charge. Whether they charge it as second or they charge it as first, they still need to seek justice for that count for that young man's life. And in, you know, researching Angela Corey's office and in speaking with lawyers who actually practice in Jacksonville. Defense attorneys go up against her every single day and her assistants every single day. That is routine. They always retry cases where there is a hung jury. You know, this isn't, they're not just doing this because it's high profile. That is the routine practice and procedure is if we get a hung jury, we just tee it all up, and we go back again on the count we did not get a verdict in. We are going to see it through to the end. And so regardless of what happens on appeal, they're going to press forward on that murder count. Like I said, what degree is still up in the air, but i got to tell you, 
she's got to be feeling pretty good about the nine to three because that means they had a vast majority back there with them. And if they can fine-tune their presentation of the evidence on a murder one charge, they might nail that conviction the next time around. What was your take on Angela Corey as as it relates to the George Zimmerman case uh, and the whole prosecution team? Do you think they were a little unprepared? Well, I'm not sure unprepared is the word. Um, As a prosecutor, I would have done things very differently. Now, I don't personally know the woman, and Mm -hmm. it's very hard for any lawyer who has not bury themselves in the evidence to sort of look at it and go, well, they didn't do this and they didn't do that. Um, But what I will say is in reading some research and looking, she's always been extremely controversial. And she was actually fired by the last uh, state's attorney down there, Harry Shorstein, for repeated problems with her performance and how she supervised people. And it wasn't until he retired and she was appointed and became the state's attorney that she became in charge. I do know that when she gives these press conferences after, you know, say, for example, after losing the Trayvon Martin case, what she does is she stands up and talks about herself and talks about how fantastic she is. And when she, you know, did not, why, didn't get a verdict on this latest uh, murder count against Jordan Davis, I watched her press conference, and the first thing that struck me was she did not say, I want to sincerely thank those three brave young men, Tommy and Tevon and Leland, who came forward and put themselves on the line and testified in this trial. I didn't ever hear her once say the victim's name. She didn't thank them. She made it all about herself, and she was picking apart the defense bar like somebody said to her, did you overcharge this case? And she immediately goes on the defensive and goes, you know, there's all kinds of motions in the state of Florida, and she starts numbering yeah. them. You know, this, this law says the motion. This law says they can file this motion. So if they don't do their job, then that's not on me. And it was all about her and all about preening and crowing and showing us how smart she is. And I thought that's really insensitive to the families of the young men who were involved in this tragedy. I wanted to hear their names. I wanted her to say thank you so much to them for being brave and coming up here. And the one young man had a criminal record, and he knew he was going to be put on national TV as a convicted criminal, but he still did it, okay? He manned up. He did what Michael Dunn couldn't do. You know, he manned up. He told the truth. He stuck around on the scene, even knowing he was going to get in trouble. So I just, from a human standpoint, I would have right. liked to have seen the press conference reflect the bravery of those people who came forward. You know, thank her team for the job they did and ensure that they're going to continue to seek justice for Jordan Davis. But don't get your butt up on your shoulders and start acting all cocky. I mean, you know, I just, right. but that's a personal thing, okay? As a prosecutor, I would have done some things differently. But, again, nobody likes a Monday morning quarterback. And the great news is, Jordan, they're going to get a chance to do it again. They're going to get a chance to go after him again on that murder count. Yes, and that's the first. She emphasized that about five times during the press conference. And you're right. She hardly mentioned justice for Jordan. She hardly mentioned those three uh, young men that testified. She mentioned, you know, things that were more relevant to her. You know, the, exactly. it was. It was really just about the Angela Coria show. 
And uh, that's where a lot of people get ticked off because it's hard to pull for somebody like that because, uh, you know, she did, the first things that should have came out of her mouth were we like to thank those three young men that that's had right. the bravery and courage to come up Precisely. and tell the truth. So from right. that standpoint, I mean, I was lucky. I worked, I worked for a DA here in Georgia, and it was all about the victims. I mean, it was all about the victims. And those three young men who survived, thank God, were victims in this too. So when you give a press conference, you know, give a nod to the people who made your case possible. But for those three young men sticking around and telling the truth and going on the stand and being subjected to cross-examination, you wouldn't have had a case. So, you know, I guess I'm spoiled in that, you know, the DA that I worked for, the first thing was it's about the victims. And they were there at the press conference. They were front and center. Their families were there. They were encouraged to speak. And we didn't see that in Florida. And, you know, let's remember that a a, a district attorney, that's what we call them here in Georgia, state's attorney in Florida, uh, you know, Massachusetts, they call them commonwealth. But the bottom line is they're prosecutors, Right. Prosecutor right. is an elected official, and they're supposed to be a servant of the people. And right. I just don't see that in these various press conferences that have been given in these high-profile cases. I don't see that she's serving the people. It seems to be very much about her, and I just find that disappointing. Totally disappointing. Uh, she was front and center. Uh, you know, John Guy hardly said anything. Uh, you know, it just is. I'm thinking totally uh, everything that uh, you were thinking. Um, I did think a little more on this, but I do want to give you some plugs. Of course, Holly Hughes uh, uh, and Manning.com. The website, is it ready yet? Uh, yeah, it should have been launched tonight, uh, HughesandManning.com. But we also, you know, I'm on Facebook. I have Holly Hughes Legal Analyst, and I'm on Twitter at Attorney H. Hughes. And, you know, we're on the net if you Google Hughes and Manning. And the easy way to remember is Hughes, like Langston Hughes or Howard Hughes, and Manning, like Peyton or Eli. We've got two pretty popular names. We're easy <laughs> to find. Hughes and Manning, you can just Google us. We, uh, we are an Atlanta law firm. And, you know, what I talk about on the air, Jordan, I'm not just a talking head. I do it every day in real life. You know, I go out there and I defend yes. the rights of people. And I fight for my years? clients. How many What's years that? have you been doing this? How many years have you been involved with the law? Uh, just shy of 20. Just shy of 20. I'm admitted to practice in New York and in Georgia, and I've been at it for 19-plus right about now. So you practice in Georgia? I do, yes. And I'm also admitted in New York because that's where I went to law school, and that was the first bar exam I took, so I can practice up there as well. Um, so, you know. That's what I do day in, day out. You know, we're in the courtrooms making it real, not just talking about it. Absolutely. I think we have a call. Uh, caller, you're on the uh, phone with uh, Holly Hughes. Hello, mate. This is uh, Mark from California. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Uh, do you ever hear any cases of any uh, black men that kill uh, white children? Well, I mean, it happens. In such a, these you, cases, you always hear about the white person killing the, the black person because of drugs and hoodies and everything else. But I really ever hear of a black person killing a, a, a teenage uh, white person. 
Right. Well, it happens, unfortunately. You know, it happens all over the place. But I think what we need to concentrate is on, are the laws protecting everybody equally? So if a black man were to kill a white person, would they be afforded the same protection of the law that we see, you know, for example, George Zimmerman getting or Michael Dunn getting? Or do we need to admit that maybe there is some inequality and address the issue? Okay. Another question that's maybe a little bit off topic here, but what would your take on, on the OJ situation? Do you think that he did it? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that the evidence in that case proved he did it, the physical evidence, because there was a lot that wasn't called into question about contamination or tampering. But I think what we saw at work there was not so much black versus white, because you had just said, you know, did you ever see a black man killing a white person? Well, that's exactly what that case was. But let's bear in mind that was more about celebrity. And we've seen a lot of celebrities, black and white along the lines, getting breaks because they can afford multi-million dollar defenses. And because they're celebrity, outshines what they're accused of doing. And people, you know, we don't want to believe O.J. Simpson, before he was ever accused of a crime, was a huge football hero, right? And he was the, uh, was it Avis or Hurt guy, you know, jumping over suitcases in the airport. He was a hero to so many. He was a role model. He was an example. And we don't ever like to admit that our heroes can fall that far, that they can do those things. So I don't think we saw so much black versus white as we saw celebrity and money showing that if you have a lot of both, you may get a different type of justice in a courtroom. Look at Lindsay Lohan. How many times has she messed up, right? If that was some poor girl on the block, you know, who had messed up, that girl would be in prison so fast she'd be serving every day of that sentence, and she wouldn't be given chance after chance after chance. And that's what we see with celebrity justice. What do you think about the social media stuff? Well, how do you mean? Um, the way it affects the, the, the livelihoods of today's, uh, uh, of, in this world. It's like a, a different, uh, uh, the medium, uh, social media, and everyone makes a comment about it, and it could just, I don't know, I think they rely on that too much. Well, the thing about going to court is there are rules of evidence, and so a lot of things are not going to be admissible. But you make a really great point, Mr. California, when you ask how does it affect our jury pool? Because mm-hmm. when we, you know, before we used to have to wait to pick up the paper, right? And I'm old enough to remember this. You know, you picked up a newspaper and you read something. But you might, you know, if you live in California, you might not read about a murder in Philly. But with the advent of all the social technology, we have the Internet, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have Tumblr, we have Instagram. It's all over the place. And a lot of what is shown in the media, and if you're talking just standard media television, that's not going to be admissible in a court of law, which is why we all need as a nation to be very careful about judging the jurors because they don't see everything we see. You know, they're sequestered and they're told don't read the newspapers and they have their cell phones taken away from them and they're not allowed access to a laptop or a tablet or a computer, so they don't see everything that we see. But I think there's good and bad to that, because the good is you get the discourse going, right? You get the temperature of the nation, so to speak, 
And let's face it, if somebody is committing a crime, a lot of times, you know, we see this with FBI things and child porn. And we were just talking at the top of the show about this killer, this alleged serial killer, right? How did they find her? Technology, because her cell phone and the victim's cell phone had contacted each other. So it has a lot of really great uses, and it's a way for us to better communicate with each other. But it also, we need to be very careful when we look at what's happening on social media versus what is allowed in a court of law, because those two things don't always add up. And there's a lot of stuff that isn't verified. You know, you can post anything on social media, and it doesn't necessarily have to be true because you're not, you know, you're not a newspaper. You don't have to source it. And so a lot of what's out there is false. And so we need to really watch ourselves when we do go up against these big trials to make sure that we're only examining the evidence that the jury got to see and not what, you know, Joe Blow down the street is posting on Twitter, which may or not may not be true. I don't think you should even take that TMZ for, uh, for or the grain of salt either at times then, because it looks like sometimes they make stuff up themselves. Well, you know, I don't read their stuff personally, so I can't, like, poke at them. But I will say as a general rule, it's always kind of good to check your sources and check your evidence and get more than one source of information. And I'm not calling them out because I, I don't know the folks there, but I do know that just as a lawyer, what I do for a living, I can suspect something, I can think something, but when I get into a courtroom, I can't tell it to a jury unless I have evidence to back it up and the judge says, Yes, Ms. Hughes, that evidence is admissible, it is allowable, and the jury can see it. So I think that's just a good lesson in life altogether. Take everything you read out there with a grain of salt. Yeah, and with uh, as far as the technology, uh, some people, uh, old school people, um, a lot of them feel that it's negative, but you can find negatives and in, in positives in, in all phases of life. Just like uh, the air conditioner wasn't always around, and that's relevant now, uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago. There was no uh, television. So, you know, I think as we get, you know, it might not be so easy for the older folks to, uh, and I'm talking old, old, like 70, 80, uh, to understand, like, the Internet and uh, using the phone to take pictures, but uh, it, it has its good because a lot of criminals uh, uh, have been caught texting and, you know, it's been used against them uh, in, in child molestation cases. So I see a lot of good with social media. Of course, they're absolutely. bad also, though. Children, absolutely. And, you know, we as a society, as a nation, we really need to police ourselves because, you know, I've experienced it personally. I'm sure you guys have. You know, people under the anonymity of a Twitter handle or a made-up Facebook page will say some of the meanest, most vile, untrue things, but they wouldn't say it to you in person. But because they can hide behind that keyboard, they feel free to do that, and they feel free to say really ugly things to each other. Yes. And so I would just encourage us as a society, having nothing to do with the criminal justice system, to just treat each other warrior. with the respect. What's that? All right. I said I call them the keyboard warriors, those people right. who talk behind, you know, they make the comments and they say all those vicious things. 
But uh, you know, if you see them in the street, they they run around. They run around so quick, you wouldn't know what hit you. You know. Right. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. So we need to teach each other and teach our children and be aware that you know, if you wouldn't say it to somebody's face, if you wouldn't take them on, then don't post it on social media because that's really disingenuous and that's hiding. Absolutely. Okay, I want to play one last clip of Richie uh, Incognito, and then we'll wrap it up on the other side. There is a report that came out, and I'm just seeing this for the first time, so now we are all going to see it for the first time together, about the Richie Incognito Jonathan Martin bullying scandal. Here are the recent texts that they released from Jonathan Martin to his mother. I am warning you, they are hard to read, they are sad, they are tough and it'll like if you have a soul basically if you're not a redhead i'm kidding if you have a soul it will hit you right here so here is what he sent to his mom i figured out a major source of my anxiety i'm a pushover a people pleaser i avoid confrontation whenever i can i always want everyone to like me i let people talk about me say anything to my face and i just take it laugh it off even when I know they are intentionally trying to disrespect me. I mostly blame the soft schools I went to. He went to Harvard-Westlake, by the way. Uh, I don't know if that's a soft school. I, I, I just know that's where he went to high school. Uh, which fostered within me a feeling, I believe he went to Harvard-Westlake, which fostered within me a feeling that I'm a huge pussy, as I never got into fights. I used to get verbally bullied every day in middle school and high school by kids that are half my size. So stopping right there. He is admitting... Everything that he learned about himself through the Richie Incognito, uh, uh, um, uh, everything that happened with Richie Incognito, and it's just unfortunate, man. This is a guy who is young, he's in the NFL, and he has to deal with this shit from a teammate, not even a guy who he sees, I don't know, twice a year as a rival to another team. This is a guy that he works out with, that he sees every day, that he has to deal with every day. It takes a toll on you, and he's certainly reflecting on the problems that he has not only faced, but he's saying this to his mom. Like, man, that is tough. So, continuing along, Martin's mom responding, My first thought is that I am glad you wrote this down as a way to start figuring it out. There are people in the world with their own insecurities, and they tend to be bullies and confront people. Dealing with them can be a challenge. I think when you feel really good about yourself, they won't bother you as much because you won't let them define you. This fits into wanting to please and be liked. Some people out there are not worth it, as in Richie Incognito. We do live in a bubble. Financial and professional success is sheltering, which is both good and bad. I think the NFL has a disproportionate share of people who are obscure but masking it with aggression. Your profession is really difficult with measurement and evolution every week. So we need to build up you liking you. This is where some professional help would be good. They can help you structure your thoughts. And that whole brain chemistry thing is real. You may need some additional serotonin. And then Martin, once again, I care about my legacy as a professional athlete, but I'm miserable currently. A therapist and medication won't help me gain the respect of my teammates. I really don't know what to do, Mom. This is him crying for help. You think that he wasn't bullied and that he didn't take a lot of shit from a guy who is a bully and who is just this, this guy who is probably totally insecure and is just, just a, a, what seems like a horrible, horrible human being. I'll get into his history in just a moment. And then another text to his mom. People call me an N-word to my face. Happened two days ago, and I laughed it off because I'm too nice of a person. They say terrible things about my sister. I don't do anything. I suppose it's while private school conditioning, turning the other cheek. Before I get to the mom's response, if someone were to say anything about you or your family, you can go two ways. 
you could vote three ways technically. You can go the Jonathan Martin route, which apparently will be, and I'm not blaming him, but will be nothing but horrible, horrible things happening, not just like to you, but it'll fuck with you mentally because they realize, oh, he didn't respond to that. We can keep going. We can keep getting away with it. Or the other two are you could say something sarcastic or you could stand up for yourself and uh, not say something sarcastic but get in the person's face, uh, which obviously uh, Jonathan Martin did not do, and I'm not blaming him whatsoever. Martin's father. They think N-word is okay because black people use it. Tell them you don't use it, and it's never okay. And if they do it again, they can kiss your black ass. Likewise, okay. Likewise, say that your sister is a Madonna. If they say it again, they can kiss your ass. If they do say either again, then just stare at them. Give them, uh, uh, and then uh, give them your finger. Just so you know, I punked out many times, including over N-word. Also over just being black. Most proud of it in the least. Uh, not proud of it in the least. He, he misspelled uh, not. Excuse me. It is just a matter of understanding your own strength. Had three white boys outside of a bowling alley called me N-word, I backed down. Had a Harvard asshole talk about my uh, suntan, I backed down. Just, say, just stay who you are. Also, I learned how to pop a bully in his mouth and kick one in his balls. All right, nice. And then Martin to his father after a yachting trip with teammates. I'm never going to change. I got punked again today like a little bitch, and I never do anything about it. I was sobbing in a rented yacht bathroom earlier. Okay, so I'm going to stop right there. Uh, before you guys, some of you, not all of you, but before some of you absolutely attack Jonathan Martin, let's just go over Richie Incognito for just a moment. This is a guy who was kicked out of two college programs in Oregon and Nebraska. He was basically told to go away by the St. Louis Rams, and now he's being told to, once again, go away from the Miami Dolphins. He has had certain instances where he has somewhat attacked a female before. Is this a guy that you want on your team? Is this a guy that you want representing the Shield in the NFL? No. No. Absolutely not. So now that you know the history and you see Jonathan Martin's text, whose side are you on? Leave a thought in the comments. Holly Hughes, I want to get your take on the Richie Cognito, Jonathan Martin bullying situation in the NFL. Okay, well, whose side am I on? Jonathan Martin, firmly, 100% in his camp. And let me say this. I applaud Amen. the man. Because a lot of people would have punched Incognito in his face. They would have taken the violent route. This is a perfect example of being a man, okay? And I know he's beating himself up and saying, well, I punked out and I didn't confront him and I didn't whatever. But you know what? He took the high road. He did not resort to violence, which so many people would have done. And instead, he is looking at himself and he's saying, what can I change about me to better be okay with me? Every single person in America, that's the hero. That's the person I want my kid to look up to, okay? I, you know, it, it reminds me of the Michael Jackson song, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. So what Martin is doing is he's saying, <laughs> what is it inside? Seriously, he thinks, what is it inside of me that I can change and I can better be okay with myself and that I don't resort to violence, but that I also don't hurt myself, that I don't resort... He is reaching out. He is saying painful things that not just a man wouldn't want to admit, but any human being wouldn't want to admit that weakness. But what does he do? He doesn't go out and get drunk and wrap his tree around a car like so many others we've seen. He doesn't take it out on his teammate, who is a bully beyond belief and needs to just be shamed. I, I, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm just stunned at the idiocy that this grown man has engaged in, okay? 
So, yeah, am I in Jonathan Martin's camp? Absolutely. And here's the thing. His mom suggested get some therapy and, you know, get some medication. That woman is brilliant. Did y'all listen to her response? My gosh, she's brilliant. And here's the thing. He can also talk to that therapist about how do I better deal with this. So it's not just taking meds. It's not just walking away. But it's exploring within yourself what can I do to be okay with my own response. And that's what every single one of us should strive to do. Jordan, is to check ourselves before we hurt somebody or we hurt ourselves. I, Jonathan Martin is a hero. I'm sorry, he's a hero to me. Yes. All right, and he's going and he's getting his help and he's doing the right thing. And incognito, quite frankly, you know, I've heard his history and I've looked at it. I don't know the man, but he could benefit from getting some help himself because clearly something happened to him that causes him to bully other people. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, but they just fired, uh, the Dolphins just fired today Kevin O'Neill, who was one of the trainers implicated in the bullying because he oh, really? was the head trainer. Yes, it just came out. It's, it's all over the net. The Dolphins fired Kevin O'Neill today. He was the head trainer. And it says he not only overheard racial insults, but he also laughed along and he never intervened. And when they tried to interview him about that, he would not cooperate with the investigators, and so the Dolphins fired him today. So, you know, kudos to them. You know, Stephen Ross has stood up and said, no, this is absolutely unacceptable, and I didn't know what was going on. You know, he's the owner of the Dolphins, and so good for him, you know, because he's saying you get your question, not... If you were the, if you were the uh, co-owner of the Miami Dolphins, uh, would you fire the head coach just to make a statement that this shit is not going to happen under my watch. I would. Because why does bullying go on, Jordan? Because we all, we stand around and do nothing. That's one thing. But, you know, you're making uh, a statement if you fire the coach and the assistant coaches. Because it all, whether they know about it or not, it all happened under their watch. Well, here's the thing. If they didn't know, and let me be real clear about that, if they didn't know that it was happening, then you can't really hold them responsible for something they weren't aware of. But here's the deal. Why weren't they aware of it? If they didn't know, there's a breakdown in leadership. There's a breakdown in communication. And can they honestly stand by and say, nobody ever told us? Now, if they're blameless, they're blameless. But if bullying continues, you know, there's the old saying, that, you know, tyranny will go on when good men do nothing. You know, when we all sit back and we all sit silent and we watch it happening, but we're afraid to stand up and say, that's not right. You know, because somebody else is being picked on and not us doesn't mean we should stand silent. If you see it and it's not right, intervene. So I think that they've taken a really good step in that they identified him as not, you know, and and by him I mean Kevin O'Neill, the trainer, he was aware of it. He played along with it. He laughed at it. I mean, we see on TV all these anti-bullying campaigns, right? We see professional yes. athletes stand for it. We see entertainers and musicians and stars saying, I'm not going to stand for it. And then you have this. And this is an embarrassment. If we're training our children to not bully, then you need to send a very strong message that it's not, if it's not acceptable for a 5-year-old or a 15-year-old, why is it acceptable for grown men? And, you know, Incognito yeah. is now tweeting out, oh, Jonathan's my brother. He's my fr- Really? I wouldn't treat yeah, my brother and, that and way. I wouldn't treat my friend that way. I have a lot of friends. From- 
before all the information came out, all the stuff about him texting stuff, you know, came right. out to the media, Incognito said, F you, Martin, then deleted his uh, Twitter. And then after, when it came out, he put his Twitter up and did damage control and said, oh, I was just kidding, he's my buddy, we played games like this all the time. I mean, this guy's a whack job, and he's he's done some crazy things, and, you know, he's the type of guy that will wind up in the criminal system if he, uh, you know, keeps going at the rate he's going. Right, and it's exactly, you hit the nail on the head, it's damage control. It has nothing to do with reaching out to your friend who you've offended or hurt, because we all say insensitive things. We can all say something stupid, but if you really, truly love that person or care about them, you go back and you say, you know what? I'm so sorry. I was out of line. My bad. And I've had to do it in my personal life where I said something and I, thought, and I thought, wow, that was really awful. And you go back and you say, I'm so sorry. Let's mend the friendship. You don't get on Twitter if you're reaching out to a friend. If you're going to reach out to a friend and say something heartfelt, don't you call them on the phone. Don't you stop by. Don't you send a personal note and say, I really messed up and I am so sorry apologize publicly. Don't go on there and make excuses for yourself. I thought it was a joke. I have friends from every race, religion, creed, across the board. I would never, never use a racial slur to any of my friends and then go, that was a joke. That's not funny, people. There are things that are funny. You know, you're laughing with milk coming out of your nose. You know, you're sticking straws in your ears. That's funny. Calling <laughs> people hurtful names, that's not funny, Jordan. Five-year-olds know that's not funny. Don't tell me a grown man doesn't know. That is a cop-out. It is a spin story, and it is self-preservation. It is not sincere remorse for the asinine behavior you've engaged in. Absolutely. And uh, as you fans can hear, if you want a tough attorney like Holly Hughes, I'm sure you do travel. Uh, You can work out something with the clients, right? They can look you up. Yep. The great uh, criminal defense attorney, and uh, you also have uh, a VMO account, right? Uh, yeah, there's a, a Vimeo link. Actually, it was posted on my Facebook page. I can't tell you what it is out loud, but what we'll do is we'll hook it up to the website, the HughesAndManning.com oh, website, okay. so they'll be able to check that out as well. Okay, and and your Twitter, of course, is uh, Attorney yeah, Attorney H Hughes. Well, uh, Holly, uh, I want to thank you for uh, touching on the three big subjects with Cognito, with Dunn, and the uh, with Tres Girl. Uh, so you're not buying anything she's selling, right? In terms no, of, I'm I- not. No. no, I'm only going to look at the evidence, and the evidence ties her to that one murder. The rest of it, unless there's some physical evidence or some corroboration, she's just making that up for attention. And we've seen it happen before with other killers where they claim responsibility for things they didn't do so that they can have their name in headlights a little bit longer. Yeah, it's just amazing, you know, what people do, and you can't make it up anymore. You know, it really is crazy. So uh, we will see what the next big trial is. Uh, I I don't know if they're going to deport Amanda Knox because... Uh, if you don't know that they recently found her not not guilty in the third phase, I don't know if you've been following that at all. 
Right. They convicted her again, but I don't think, based on our laws here in the United States, the whole double jeopardy thing, once you're acquitted in the United States, you can't be retried. So I think that what the Italian court did is repugnant to the idea of American jurisprudence. So I don't see them ever honoring an extradition request. I really don't. And let's face it, it's being appealed. It's being appealed up to the Italian Supreme Court, so it's not over. Yeah, I mean, like uh, you said it right there, that is, that's one good reason for not deporting her because we don't go by those rules in terms of double jeopardy. Just like when Casey Anthony was uh, found not guilty, they couldn't retry her, right? Exactly. That's correct. So, yeah, once it's over, it's over. In the American jurisprudence system, if a person gets convicted, they have an automatic right to appeal because we want to make 100% sure when we're taking away somebody's liberty that everything was done right. But if the state loses, if a person gets acquitted, the state can't appeal that. It's over. The, you know, the Constitution says you don't get two bites at the apple state. You should have come correct the first time out of the gate. And so what the Italians did, like I said, is repugnant to our system of justice. So even if they did request extradition, I don't see it being honored. I really don't. No, it wouldn't set a good precedent. But uh, I want to thank you uh, a million. Uh, you were great on Saturday. As the uh, Dunn verdict was coming in, you, Don, Joey Jackson, and the rest of the gang, we've been on the show, uh, uh, great coverage on Saturday on e- on CNN, and uh, that's when you're usually on, right? During the weekend. Yeah, I'm on. Yeah, I'm on every Saturday um, on the five o'clock newsroom show. So sometime between five and six, you'll see my legal commentary on whatever the issues of the day are. And in response to your other question, I think probably Aaron Hernandez is the next big trial we're going to see. Oh yeah, right. Match that that's. That's called the Commonwealth over there, like yep, you were talking exactly. before. So there uh, seems to be a lot of evidence, but as you know, uh, that doesn't matter in, in these cases because especially with the uh, the popular star, you know. Anything can happen in a court of law. It's not over until the jury speaks it. Absolutely. Okay, we'll look for you in the weekend, and uh, hopefully you come back to the show. Uh, your insight was amazing, and uh, we look forward to having you back, Holly. Thanks, Jordan. You going to post the link to uh, Twitter for the show? Yes, in about 20 minutes, I will. Po- I will post it, and you could re- retweet it. Fantastic, and we'll retweet it out because it goes automatically to my Facebook too, so the listeners can catch it. Thanks so much. Awesome. Okay, Holly. All thanks right. for joining us tonight. You're welcome. And- Good night. And that was CNN legal analyst Holly Hughes who joined us. Uh, Next week we will have Richard Herman um, and Joey Jackson the following week. Uh, We learned a lot from uh, Mrs. Hughes in terms of law. Uh, A very good good, uh, interview. Now, we did have some technical problems in the first hour. I just want to clear up. So... uh, the blog talk radio was down for an hour, uh, well, 50 minutes. So I couldn't start the show till about 50 minutes into the show. So it was, it was very stressful and annoying since this is a show that's supposed to be featured. But in any event, um, I should have... <laughs> 
Jimmy, the mouth of the South, heart on very soon. I'll keep you posted. Thanks for listening to King Jordan Radio. Uh, We should be back soon with the Honky Tonk Man and Jimmy Hart. Take care, everybody. Don't forget, facebook.com forward slash King Jordan Radio. Don't forget, www.kingjordansportsandmedia.com and at Twitter, at Mr. King Jordan. Take care, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.